0: Hi. Before we start today, just a quick announcement. In order to fit in better with my schedule, The Myths and History of Greece and Rome will now be released every other Thursday rather than every other Tuesday. The frequency of the episodes will not change, just the day they're released. So, on with today's episode. Hello. Welcome to The Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 75, Romans Being Clever, Part 1. In chapter 45, we looked at the Greek advances in science, technology and mathematics. Greek mathematics was revolutionary, and the Greeks were fascinated by maths for its own sake, what we might call pure mathematics. The Romans were cut from a different cloth. They had virtually no interest at all in pure maths, but they were very interested in applied mathematics. Anything which could be used in the advancement of the empire was fine by them. Thus, it was technology and engineering which interested them, and they made great strides forward in these areas. The Romans are, of course, known to the modern world as extremely successful builders. The feats of engineering required to construct their most impressive and useful edifices are remarkable indeed. Probably the most important engineering feat the Romans achieved was the construction of aqueducts. These water-carrying bridges served two crucial functions, water supply and water removal. Water was diverted from nearby rivers and lakes for uses in bath complexes, domestic buildings and industry. The wastewater, and of course the sewage from the city, was removed to bodies of water some considerable distance from the city. These aqueducts later formed part of the technology required for artificial canals and piped water supply. Sewerage was a problem for the Romans, as it is for any civilization which builds and inhabits cities. The Romans solved the problem by building a complex but highly efficient sewerage system. The sewers were built from stone pipes. Leaks and the associated stench were kept away from public areas. The Romans also introduced public toilets, a common sight in most modern cities. A tax for using them was levied. As we've heard, the emperor Vespasian even managed to derive revenue from the liquid waste itself. Aqueducts were also used to provide water for hydraulic mining, where large quantities of water are released onto a hillside known to contain ore. The water both revealed the veins of the metal and worked the ore itself. The engineering, hydraulic and other mathematical calculations required to realise the great engineering feats were done on something which was little more than an abacus. So, although the Romans didn't advance the study of maths itself, they applied it more effectively than any civilization before them. Some of their achievements were not matched until the 1800s. A key Roman discovery which enables their engineering achievements was that of concrete. A kind of concrete had been known before, but the Romans improved upon it, creating something which dried faster and was far more waterproof. The previously available concrete mix of limestone and sand was mixed with rubble and an ash sand type of material found near volcanoes called pozzolana. The mixture was amazing for the age, It could be formed into any shape for which a mould could be made. Originally, concrete was used for the base of altars, but the Romans, ever trying to find a way to improve their various construction projects, began to experiment with it. They discovered it could be used to create more freestanding forms. The innovation was revolutionary. The Romans had effectively made a liquid rock that was both lighter and stronger than quarried stone. Concrete could also set underwater, and was flexible enough to withstand the effects of earthquakes. The Pantheon, one of the iconic still-standing Roman buildings, is made from concrete. It stood for nearly 2,000 years. The Pantheon also demonstrates the success of another Roman invention, the dome. The use of domes, rather than lots of irritating columns, reduced the cost of building large interiors, and allowed larger, unimpeded spaces to be realised. Of course, one of the best-known achievements of the Romans is the construction of roads. The Romans built their network of highways by covering a base of heavy stones with mud and gravel. This promoted effective drainage. Roman roads are known for being straight. One of the reasons for this is that the original long-distance routes were constructed to move armies. All of these routes were planned and built by the army. They were to be as straight as possible and remain as level as possible throughout their course to keep soldier and horse fatigue to a minimum. Obstacles such as swamps, marshes, forests and hills were to be avoided wherever this was practical. The road was to be as short, flat and straight as possible. Cuttings, tunnels and viaducts were sometimes built to keep the road straight. Sometimes though, the very size and position of mountains or hills meant that one of the principles, flatness or straightness, had to be sacrificed. A few sections of some roads rise and fall as they climb up steep slopes and then swoop down the other side before rising again up the next slope. If overall straightness was to be sacrificed, then the Romans tried to bend the roads by using small, straight sections rather than sweeping curves. The Romans also brought into practice a defined width for the roads. This extensive road network needed to cross rivers. One of the outstanding achievements of Roman engineering was bridges. The bridges they built were not only well capable of doing the job, they were, in many cases, very beautiful. The Romans realised the enormous strength provided by the arch. Like many other advances, they didn't actually invent the arch, they simply experimented with it and realised its enormous potential, and then perfected the technique of building it. It wasn't only the road transport that was improved by Roman invention and construction. They also built lighthouses to protect their sea-based transport. Extensive remains of a Roman lighthouse can be seen at Dover Castle in England, which I was lucky enough to visit a few weeks ago. The perfection of concrete allowed the Romans to build quite wonderful buildings. Concrete itself, though, is not a beautiful material, and the Romans covered it with marble. They used mosaic tiles and glass windows to decorate their homes and public buildings, and ancient Roman architecture is both distinctive and very attractive. We have also mentioned some of the iconic buildings in Rome. Trajan's Marketplace, the Pantheon, the Colosseum, the Arch of Titus, the Columns of Trajan and Marcus Aurelius. But the provinces were almost as extensively adorned with temples, arches, aqueducts and amphitheatres. The whole Roman world could be seen as a homogeneous unit because of the architecture and the public buildings. This can still be seen in the remains that survive today. The insides of Roman buildings also benefited from Roman ingenuity. The invention of the hypercaust, a method of underfloor heating, was a vital element in the development of public baths. The floor of the building to be heated was raised above the ground on pillars. On top of the pillars was a layer of tiles, then a layer of concrete, and finally another layer of tiles. A continually burning furnace created heat, which was then allowed to flow through the space below the raised floor thus heating the floor and the rest of the room. Once cooled, the air escaped through the flues in the wall and out of vents in the roof. The furnace, which took up a considerable amount of space, was usually located in a separate room. The hypocaust was expensive, labour-intensive and a constant source of death by carbon monoxide poisoning, but it provided the Romans with a level of comfort not available to many later people. The Romans harnessed the power of flowing water, building water mills to grind grain. They also created stamp mills which crushed grain and other materials, such as gold-bearing quartz, by pounding them rather than grinding. One of the most well-known water-powered Roman edifices was the 3rd century Hierapolis water-powered sawmill, constructed in Asia Minor. The Romans invented the concept of creating reservoirs to store a large quantity of water to supply, via the aqueducts, the people and industry of the cities, they built dams on a far larger scale than any previously known. The Romans invented the technique of glass blowing. Until sometime around 50 BC, glass could only be formed into useful objects by various casting techniques. This was both difficult and time consuming. Only about 10 objects could be made in a standard day. The Roman glass workers discovered that an object could be formed by gathering molten glass onto the end of a pipe and inflating it by blowing through a hollow tube. The glass could then be shaped into pretty much any form. Over the next hundred years or so, glassblowers discovered how to blow glass into hollow moulds to create even more useful items. The technique was efficient and adaptable, and Roman glassblowers could produce dozens of objects in a day. Vessels, jugs, hanging oil lamps and window glass, among many other things, were made using this method. The Romans didn't really invent any military technology, they adapted what they saw others using. They made some advances in artillery and siege engines, but their greatest military innovations were in the organisations of the legions. I will do a chapter on the changing Roman army when we get some way through the 4th century. Before moving on and returning to our trek through ancient Roman history though, it's worth looking at Roman innovation in one more specific area. It was not a technological or engineering revolution, but an organisational one. In 46 BC, prompted by Julius Caesar, the Romans introduced a formal calendar. Before Caesar got hold of the Roman calendar, it was extremely complicated. The standard year consisted of 12 months and a total of 355 days. Of course, the time it takes the Earth to orbit the sun, and therefore the actual length of the year, is a shade over 365 and a quarter days, this meant the Roman year very quickly got out of step with the real year. To rectify this, an extra month was inserted every other year, adding 22 or 23 days to the year. These longer years were called intercalary years. This insertion though still resulted in the average year length over any 4 year period, being 366 and a quarter days. This was rectified by one 8 year period in every 3, having only 3 intercalary years and not 4. Thus there were 11 intercalary years in every 24 years. In practice, it wasn't even this well organised. The process of inserting months was managed by a group of people known as pontiffs. As these men were politicians, their management of the calendar was frequently motivated by politics, favouritism and bribery, rather than a genuine desire to keep the year in tune with the seasons and equinoxes. A pontifex may refuse to lengthen a year in which one of his political opponents was serving, On the other hand, he could extend a year during which a political ally or someone prepared to part with a whole load of cash was serving. Julius Caesar was well travelled. He got involved in the succession dispute in Egypt and had an affair with Cleopatra. It's probably during this time that he encountered the Egyptian calendar, which was more accurately based on the real solar year. In 46 BC, he called together a council to decide on a reform to the calendar to make it more easy to use and less open to corruption. According to Pliny, the architect of the new system was the astronomer Sosigenes of Alexandria. The first thing to do was to fix the beginning of the year. This was moved from mid-March, around the time of the vernal equinox, to the beginning of January. Next he had to get the months back in tune with the solar year. It seems that the intercalary years had not been put in place properly during the years up to 46 BC, as the year was approximately 80 days adrift of where it should be. Two extra months were added to the year between November and December, and 46 BC ended up being 445 days long. It was referred to, quite reasonably, as the Year of Confusion. The new calendar began in 45. It was far simpler than before. The odd-numbered months each had 31 days, and the even ones had 30. The only exception was February, which had 29 days in normal years, but received its full allocation of 30 every fourth year. This meant the average number of days in a year was 365 and a quarter, just as it is now. In 44, Julius Caesar changed the name of the seventh month of his new calendar to July. The final change to the Julian calendar was made in 8 BC, when the Emperor Augustus decided he should have a month named after him too. Thus the eighth month was renamed August. August only had 30 days rather than 31, so another day was taken from poor old February and added to August. Then, so there were not three consecutive months with 31 days, a day was removed from September and added to October, and one taken from November and added to December. The Julian calendar was used in Europe and North Africa until 1582. The Romans had been aware that the solar year was actually slightly less than 365 and a quarter days, and so the new calendar would cause the year to move by a day every 128 years or so. At the time, it was not considered to be important, but the discrepancy was enough for Pope Gregory Thirteenth to introduce a new calendar which is even more accurate. It's this Gregorian calendar which we use today. In a few chapters' time, we will look at Roman writers and historians. For now, though, let's get back to following Roman history and find out what happened when the great Marcus Aurelius succumbed to the Antonine Plague. Next time, we shall watch this catastrophe unfold. Until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.